Chapter 4 of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Key Out of Time Chapter 4 Storm Menace We have to know. Ash leaned back against the crate they had just emptied. Something was done here, in two hundred years, and then an empty world. Pandora's box. Ross drew a hand across his forehead, smearing sweat and fine sand into a brand. Ash nodded. Maybe we run that risk, losing all the devils of the aliens. But what if the Reds opened the box first on one of their settlement worlds? There it was again, the old thorn which had prodded them into risks and recklessness. Danger ahead on both paths. Don't risk trying to learn galactic secrets, but don't risk your enemies learning them either. You held a white-hot iron in both hands in this business. And Ash was right. They had stumbled on something here which hinted that a whole world had been altered to suit some plan. Suppose the secret of that alteration was discovered by their enemies. Were the ship and castle people natives? Ross wondered aloud. Just at a guess, they were, or at least settlers who had been established here so long they had developed a local form of civilization, which was about on the level of a feudal society. You mean because of the castle and the rock bombardment? But what about the ships? Two separate phases of a society at war perhaps a more progressive against a less technically advanced. American warships paying a visit to the Shogun's Japan, for example. Ross grinned. Those warships didn't seem to fancy their welcome. They steered out to sea fast enough when the rocks began to fall. Yes, but the ships could exist in the castle pattern. The pylons could not. Which period are you aiming for first, the castle or the pylons? Castle first, I think. Then, if we can't pick up any hints, we'll take some jumps forward until we do connect. Only, we'll be under severe handicaps. If we could only plant an analyzer somewhere in the castle as a beginning. Ross did not show his surprise. If Ash was talking on those terms, then he was intending to do more than just lurk around a little beyond the gate. He was really planning to pick up alien speech patterns, eventually assume an alien agent identity. Gordon! Carrara appeared between two of the lace trees. She came so hastily that the contents of the two cups she carried slopped over. You must hear what Hori has to say. The tall Samoan who trailed her spoke quickly. For the first time since Ross had known him, he was very serious, a frown line between his eyes. There is a bad storm coming. Our instruments register it. How long away? Ash was on his feet. A day, maybe two. Ross could see no change in the sky, islands, or sea. They had had idyllic weather for the six weeks since their planeting. No sign of any such trouble in the Hawaiian paradise. It's coming, Hori repeated. The gate is half up, Ash thought aloud too much of it set to be dismantled again in a hurry. If it's completed, Hori wanted to know, would it ride out a storm? It might, behind that reef where we have it based. To finish it would be a fast job. Hori flexed his hands. 
We're more brawn than brain in these matters, Gordon, but you've all our help, for what it's worth. What about the ship? Does it lift on schedule? Check with Rimbaud about that. This storm, how will it compare to a Pacific typhoon? The Samoan shook his head. How do we know? We have not yet had to face the local variety. The islands are low, Carrara commented. Winds and water could... Yes, we'd better see Rimbaud about a shelter if needed. If the settlement had drowsed, now its habitants were busy. It was decided that they could shelter in the spaceship should the storm reach hurricane proportions, but before its coming the gate must be finished. The final fitting was left to Ash and Ross, and the older agent fastened the last bolt when the waters beyond the reef were already wind-ruffled, the sky darkening fast. The dolphin swam back and forth in the lagoon, and with them Carrara, though Ash had twice waved her to the shore. There was no sunlight left and they worked with torches. Ash began his inspection of the relatively simple transfer, the two upright bars, the slab of opaque material forming a doorstep between them. This was only a skeleton of the gates Ross had used in the past, but continual experimentation had produced this more easily transported installation. Piled in a net were several supply containers ready for an exploring run, extra gill packs, the analyzer, emergency rations, a medical kit, all the basics. Was Ash going to try now? He had activated the transfer, the rods were glowing faintly, the slab they guarded having an eerie blue glimmer. He probably only wanted to be sure it worked. What happened at that moment Ross could never find any adequate words to describe, nor was he sure he could remember. The disorientation of the pass-through he had experienced before. This time he was whirled into a vortex of feeling in which his body, his identity, were ripped from him and he lost touch with all stability. Instinctively he lashed out, his reflexes more than his conscious will keeping him above water in the wild rage of a storm-whipped sea. The light was gone, here was only dark and beating water. Then a lightning flash ripped wide the heavens over Ross as his head broke the surface and he saw, with unbelieving eyes, that he was being thrust shoreward, not to the strand of Finger Island, but against a cliff where water pounded an unyielding wall of rock. Ross comprehended that somehow he had been jerked through the gate, that he was now fronting the land that had been somewhere beneath the heights supporting the castle. Then he fought for his life to escape the hammer of the sea determined to crack him against the surface of the cliff. A rough surface loomed up before him, and he threw himself in that direction, embracing a rock, striving to cling through the backwash of the wave which had brought him there. His nails grated and broke on the stone, and then the fingers of his right hand caught in a hole, and he held with all his strength in his gasping, beaten body. He had had no preparation, no warning, and only the tough survival will which had been trained and bred into him saved his life. As the water washed back, Ross strove to pull up farther on his anchorage, to be above the strike of the next wave. Somehow he gained a foot before it came. The mask of the gill pack saved him from being smothered in that curling torrent as he clung stubbornly, resisting again the pull of the retreating sea. 
Inch by inch, between the waves, he fought for footing and stable support. Then he was on the surface of the rock, out of all but the lash of spray. He crouched there, spent and gasping. The thunder roar of the surf, and beyond it the deeper mutter of the rage in the heavens, was deafening, dulling his sense as much as the ordeal through which he had passed. He was content to cling where he was, hardly conscious of his surroundings. Sparks of light along the shore to the north at last caught Ross's attention. They moved, some clustering along the wave-line, a few strung up the cliff. And they were not part of the storm's fireworks. Men here! Why at this moment? Another bolt of lightning showed him the answer. On the reef fringe, which ran a tongue of land into the sea, hung a ship, two ships, pounded by every hammer wave. Shipwrecks! and those lights must mark castle-dwellers drawn to aid the survivors. Ross crawled across his rock on his hands and knees, wavered along the cliff-wall until he was again faced with angry water. To drop into that would be a mistake. He hesitated, and now more than his own predicament struck home to him. Ash! Ash had been ahead of him at the time-gate. If Ross had been jerked through to this past, then somewhere in the water, on the shore, Gordon was here, too. But where to find him? Setting his back to the cliff and holding to the rough stone, Ross got to his feet, trying to see through the welter of foam and water. Not only the sea poured here. Now a torrential rain fell into the bargain, streaming down about him, battering his head and shoulders. A chill rain which made him shiver. He wore gill-pack, weighted belt with its sheathed tool and knife, flippers, and the pair of swimming trunks which had been suitable for the Hawaika he knew. But this was a different world altogether. Dare he use his torch to see the way out of here? Ross watched the lights to the north, deciding they were not too unlike his own beam, and took the chance. Now he stood on a shelf of rock pitted with depressions, all pools. To his left was a drop into a boiling, whirling cauldron from which points of stone fanged. Ross shuddered. At least he had escaped being pulled into that. To his right, northward, there was another space of sea, a narrow strip and then a second ledge. He measured the distance between that and the one on which he perched. Staying where he was would not locate ash. Ross stripped off his flippers, made them fast in his belt. Then he leapt and landed painfully as his feet slipped and he skidded face down on the northern ledge. As he sat up, rubbing a bruise and scraped knee, he saw lights advancing in his direction, and between them a shadow crawling from water to shore. Ross stumbled along the ledge hastening to reach that figure, who lay still now just out of the waves. Ash? Ross's limping pace became a trot. But he was too late. The other lights, two of them, had reached the shadow. A man, or at least a body which was humanoid, sprawled face down. Other men, three of them, gathered over the exhausted swimmer. Those who held the torches were still partially in the dark, but the third stooped to roll over their find. Ross caught the glint of light on a metallic head-covering the glisten of wet armor of some type on the fellow's back and shoulders as he made quick examination of the sea's victim. Then Ross halted, his eyes wide. 
a hand rose and fell with expert precision. There had been a blade in that hand. Already the three were turning away from the man so ruthlessly dispatched. Ash, or some survivor of the wrecked ships. Ross retreated to the end of the ledge. The narrow stream of water dividing it from the rock where he had won ashore washed into a cave in the cliff. Dare he try to work his way into that? Mast, with the gill-pack, he could go under surface if he were not smashed by the waves against some wall. He glanced back. The lights were very close to the end of his ledge. To withdraw to the second rock would mean being caught in a dead end, for he dared not enter the whirlpool on its far side. There was really no choice. Stay and be killed, or try for the cave. Ross fastened on his flippers and lowered his body into the narrow stream. The fact that it was narrow and guarded on either side by the ledges tamed the waves a little, and Ross found the tug against him not so great as he feared it would be. Keeping handholds on the rock, he worked along, head and shoulders often under the wash of rolling water, but winning steadily to the break in the cliff wall. Then he was through, into a space much larger than the opening, water-filled but not with a wild turbulence of waves. Had he been sighted? Ross kept a handhold to the left of that narrow entrance, his body floating with the rise and fall of the water. He could make out the gleam of light without. It might be that one of those hunters had leaned out over the runnel of the cave entrance, was flashing his torch down into the water there. Behind mask-plate Ross's lips writhed in the snarl of the hunted. In here he would have the advantage. Let one of them, or all three, try to follow through that rock entrance, and— But if he had been sighted at the mouth of the lair, none of his trackers appeared to wish to press the hunt. The light disappeared, and Ross was left in the dark. He counted a hundred slowly, and then a second hundred, before he dared use his own torch. For all, its slit entrance was a good-sized hideaway he had chanced upon. Andy discovered, when he ventured to release his wall-hold and swim out into its middle, the bottom arose in a slope toward its rear. Moments later Ross pulled out of the water once more, to crouch shivering on a ledge only lapped now and then by wavelets. He had found a temporary refuge, but his good fortune did not quiet his fears. Had that been ash on the shore? And why had the swimmer been so summarily executed by the men who found him? The ships caught on the reef, the castle on the cliff above his head. Enemies, ships' crews, and castle men. But the callous act of the shore patrol argued a state of war carried to fanatic proportions, perhaps interracial conflict. He could not hope to explore until the storm was over. To plunge back into the sea would not find ash, and to be hunted along the shore by an unknown enemy was simply asking to die without achieving any good in return. No, he must remain where he was for the present. Ross unhooked the torch from his belt and used it on this higher portion of the cave. He was perched on a ledge which protruded into the water in the form of a wedge. At his back the wall of the cave was rough. The trails of weed were festooned on its projections. The smell of fishy decay was strong enough to register as Ross pulled off his mask. As far as he could now see, there was no exit except by sea. 
a movement in the water brought his light flashing down into the dark flood. Then a sleek head arose in the path of that ray. Not a man swimming, but one of the dolphins. Ross's exclamation of surprise was half gasp, half cry. The second dolphin showed for a moment, and between the shadow of their bodies, just under the surface, moved a third form. Ash! Ross had no idea how the dolphins had come through the time-gate, but that they had guided to safety a Terran he did not doubt at all. Ash! But it was not Ash who came waiting to the ledge where Ross waited with hand outstretched. He had been so sure of the other's identity that he blinked in complete bewilderment as his eyes met Carrara's and she half stumbled, half reeled against him. His arms about her shoulder steadied her, and her shivering body was close to his as she leaned her full weight upon him. Her hands made a feeble movement to her mask, and he pulled it off. Uncovered, her face was pale and drawn, her eyes were now closed, and her breath came in ragged, tearing sobs which shook her even more. "'How did you get here?' Ross demanded, even as he pushed her down on the ledge. Her head moved slowly, in a weak gesture of negation. "'I don't know. We were close to the gate. There was a flash of light. Then—' Her voice sealed up with a note of hysteria in it. "'Then I was here, and Tawa with me. Tina Rao came. Ross, Ross, there was a man swimming. He got ashore. He was getting to his feet and—and they killed him." Ross's hold tightened. He stared into her face with fierce demand. Was it Gordon? She blinked, brought her hand up to her mouth, and wiped it back and forth across her chin. There was a small red trickle growing between her fingers, dripping down her arm. Gordon? She repeated it as if she had never heard the name before. Yes, did they kill Gordon? In his grasp she was swaying back and forth. Then, realizing he was shaking her, Ross got himself under control. But a measure of understanding had come into her eyes. No, not Gordon. Where is Gordon? You haven't seen him? Ross persisted, knowing it was useless. Not since we were at the gate. Her words were less slurred. Weren't you with him? No, I was alone. Ross, where are we? Better say, when are we? He replied. We're through the gate and back in time. And we have to find Gordon. He did not want to think of what might have happened out on the shore. End of chapter 4